There we go. Whoa. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna want to cut that way down. This is whispering. Let me try again. Greetings on behalf of Church Creek Presbyterian. It's uh, very exciting to be here with y'all this morning and to get to uh, have this opportunity to lead us in a short reflection here to get our hearts and our minds geared towards what we are about to um, be focusing on for the next few weeks as we enter into that season uh, where we have a special focus on the incarnation of Christ. This morning, I just want to read one verse. Uh, You can follow along with me if you like. Uh, This is from Isaiah 57. I'm going to read Isaiah 57, 15. Now, don't let one verse fool you. This is a packed, packed verse. Some have referred to this verse as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Others have, uh, in speaking about this verse, have said, if you want to know the totality of what the Bible is about, you can read this verse. Others have said the New Testament itself is just a very long-running commentary explaining this verse. This verse is power-packed, um, and it's a verse that um, I think is very appropriate to help us in thinking about Advent. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we ask this morning for you to speak to us once again. And so give us ears that will allow us to listen and to hear your voice and to cherish what you have for us. Give us eyes that can see Jesus. And give us hands and feet that are ready to walk in devotion to you as we seek to be the people of God. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On December 13th, 1943... Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a letter to his fiancée, Maria von Wedemeyer. In this letter, as he's writing from prison to her, writing because they are not going to be able to see one another, writing 
not knowing whether or not he'll even be alive at Christmas. He says to his fiancée, be brave for my sake, dearest Maria. Even if this letter is your only token of my love this Christmas tide, we shall ponder the incomprehensibility of our lot and be assailed by the question of why over and above the darkness already enshrouding humanity. We should be subjected to the bitter anguish of a separation whose purpose we fail to understand. And then, just when everything is bearing down on us, to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christian message comes to tell us that all our ideas are wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault, that is all. God is in the manger. Wealth in, in poverty, light in darkness, succor in abandonment. How can one who is in prison awaiting his execution at the hands of none other than Adolf Hitler, how can he, in writing to his fiancée, write to her to encourage her during this time of Christmas, this time of separation, this time when a man of God who had given his life to the church was giving of himself to the bride of Jesus Christ, finds himself in prison, finds his existence dangling in the balance of the hands of a madman. How can he be the one writing to her as she is outside, as she is enjoying at least some semblance of freedom, as she can somewhat move about and go about a normal existence from day to day? How is it that he is the one writing an encouragement? These words from him as he is being honest in this reflection of what it means for him to feel the weight of his powerlessness, to feel the weight of the dire circumstances in which they find themselves, dealing with the heartache of not being near her. The answer that he gives is an answer that I would hope that you would hear and that you might start to some degree to believe and that for the rest of your life would practice and rehearse and say to yourself over and over and over the problem that we face when we are in these kinds of circumstances. The problem is that our eyes are at fault. We're not seeing things correctly. We're not seeing things as they really are. 
the life of devotion that the Christian faith calls us to as God's people is a life that can be summed up in terms of learning to see correctly. Learning through a progress of time and, and exposure to God's truth and having God in being present with us and speaking to us and nurturing us with his presence, us learning more and more and more to look at our present circumstances differently and learning to see them as God understands them. And then in seeing that, what we find is not simply this ability to cope or to hang on. What we find is the means by which we flourish as the people of God shining as lights in the midst of a dark generation. When we look here at this life of of Bonhoeffer as he is striving to see his circumstances through the lens of God. It is no different than the challenge that is set before the people of God here in Isaiah as they too find themselves in a circumstance where they are acutely aware of their powerlessness. They are acutely aware that they are the smallest of the nations in this geographical realm where they have Egypt, a powerhouse, off to the south. And they have Assyria, another powerhouse that is to the north. And they're going to have the Babylonians who are going to be a powerhouse off to the east. And they are surrounded by these three powerhouse nations with armies and technology. And Israel... To those nations is nothing more than a strip of land to pass through where they can find food for their armies as they're moving against one another. Israel is acutely aware of how small it is and how weak it is in comparison to these other nations. But even worse than that, what we learn in, the, in this book of Isaiah from the very beginning of, of this prophecy is that the, the people are weaker than they are, even know. It is a weakness that comes from sin. It is a weakness that comes from their own idolatry and the way that they are turning away from, from Yahweh in order to worship idols. They see the strength of the surrounding nations and they are buying into where they think that strength comes from and which in the ancient Near East, the strength of the nation came from the strength of its gods. And so the people of God have been, in a sense, hedging their bets. And as they continue to worship Yahweh, they're also worshiping other gods as well. And so God comes from the very beginning of this prophecy and says, you and I have a problem, and the problem is your idolatry. And as a result of your idolatry, I'm going to bring upon you the curses of the covenant that I promised you back in Deuteronomy. And the result is going to be that the people of God are going to be judged, and they're going to be judged by God bringing in the nations, using the foreign nations to defeat them to take them off into captivity. 
what we know historically is that the 12 tribes are really going to become two. They're shrinking. And as God will take, uh, cause people to be taken off into captivity, not everyone is going to return. They're getting smaller. From every aspect of the existence of Israel at this time, what they are hearing from the Lord is that they're about to shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. Get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Become more powerless, more powerless, more powerless, more powerless. What he promises them is that their world is about to be shaken upside down. He wants his people to know that there is hope. There is hope for a small people. There is hope for a shrinking people. There is hope for a people who are seeing their political uh, uh, power go away. Does that sound familiar? There going to understand what it's like to have their influence lessened. Does that sound familiar? They're going to find out what it's like to not really get to have much of a voice in what goes on in their own land. Does that sound familiar? I think if you were to look at the last several years of the cultural direction of our nation, and the church's relationship to that, we would find that our influence is waning. We would find that our ability to persuade the day is becoming non-existent. That we are finding that for us, we're not just able to go out and get our person elected in order to get our preferences to be the law of the land. And what has happened in the last couple years is there have been many evangelicals who decided to try to do that anyway by hooking themselves up politically to someone that would never have been acceptable five years ago as they have felt their power waning, and as they have felt their influence shrinking, they have been willing to cut corners and give in and participate and even defend things that are not defensible. It is a very real struggle for us when we have to go from saying theoretically that being a part of the people of God means that we are Uh, aliens and strangers in a world that is not our home. It's easy to say that theoretically when you are the one who is controlling culture, but when that control is lost, how do we respond? How do you respond when you think you're going along in a, a nice, you know, comfortable life and you go to the doctor for a routine checkup and what you get is a diagnosis of cancer? What do you do when you go into work this coming week and things seem to be going well and you're handed that slip that says, we got to lay you off? 
What happens when you are uh, trying to be a, a loving, caring parent and you are spending your time and investing yourself into your children and then one of them comes home and you find out that they're rejecting the church, rejecting Christ? What do you do in those moments when you feel the acute awareness that you're not as big or you're not as strong or you're not as influential as you thought that you were? You see, what Bonhoeffer is wrestling with, what Israel is wrestling with, it's nothing different than what you and I wrestle with on a daily basis. And so what is this message of hope for the people of God in the midst of feeling small and feeling weak and feeling like you you don't have any influence? Well, God says to his people in Isaiah 57, 15, the one who is high And lifted up the one who inhabits eternity, the one whose name is holy, the one who dwells in the high and the holy place. This exalted God, this eternal God, this being who is completely independent because he does not need anything. He has everything that he needs self-contained within himself. If you understand what that means, tell me afterwards. I can't, I can't wrap my mind, I can't wrap my heart around what it must mean for the Lord to be exalted and holy and eternal and who dwells in the high and the holy place who is so completely, utterly transcendent from me, from my experiences. He doesn't even feel dependent, let alone have to wrestle with the weaknesses that get exposed when you and your dependence are revealed to be less than what you think you are. He can never be less than what he knows he is. But notice what he says. It's this independent, eternal, utterly transcendent God who chooses to dwell with the contrite and the lowly in spirit. Do you see the contrast or the intersection? There's a popular word right now. The intersection of the monumental with the minute, with the holy other, with the community of his people. The one who is so high and so lifted up, who is so eternal, chooses on his own to dwell with those who are lowly. And not just to dwell with them, 
but notice, to revive their spirit, to revive your hearts. God, as Bonhoeffer said, is in the manger. Emmanuel, God with us, is the one who is high and lifted up, but has come near. This text, it offers us these three simple yet profound truths. That one, there is the utter transcendence of God. Two, his utter transcendence does not rule out his dwelling with the lowly. And three, the reason he dwells with the lowly is to cause them to share in his transcendence. There is an exchange that the Lord is willing to do. We sang of this exchange in, 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 this, in one of the songs this morning as we sang about Christ becoming sin for us in order that we can stand freely before the throne of God. God is doing something when he comes and when he dwells with his people. It's not simply to, to set up a residence. It's not simply to come down out of the heavenly places in order that he can be with us, but he has a purpose. And his purpose in dwelling with the lowly is to then cause the lowly to dwell with him in his exaltation. There is this incredible purpose that God has. And so as he is revealing himself as the one who is exalted, he reveals this in order to help us rightly perceive and understand our smallness. Not so that in feeling our smallness or in rightly recognizing our smallness that we would shrink back or that it would cause us to be, you know, to be like, oh, I should have nothing to do with you. It's in order to see just how amazing it is that he comes to us at all and that he desires in the heart of his heart to dwell with you. And he is willing to dwell with you in lowliness for a time in order that you might dwell with him in the exaltation of his existence for all eternity. What's amazing to me about this passage, though, is not simply in the way that it tells us what God is doing, but how he does it. It's the how that is important here. It is the how he accomplishes his purposes. It's the how he goes about doing what he planned to do before the foundations of the world. It's the how. Because it's in the how that you and I not only understand who we are as God's, as God's people, but we understand our participation in his purposes. God, in what he tells us here in the book of Isaiah, 
and what he tells us in the Advent and what he tells us in the Bible as a whole is that what God is doing is he is using the seemingly weak in order to constrain everything towards the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah begins with God revealing to them his judgment because of their sin and because of their idolatry. And yet, Isaiah, the book, ends in 66 with these glorious, incredible promises that this people who receive this judgment are going to participate in this eternal reality of a new heavens and a new earth with him. And the way that he accomplishes that that purpose is by him coming and dwelling with the lowly. It's by him, the one who is completely transcendent, becoming so imminent that he can be touched, that he can be handled. That he can be swaddled. That he could be nursed. Is there any symbol of what it means to be weak and fragile and completely dependent than the image of a baby? you see what God is doing? The one who is high and lifted up has come into a manger. The one who has dwelt eternally in the utter transcendence of his existence came into this world so dependent that he needed a mother to give birth to him, to swaddle him, to hold him, to nurse him, to teach him, to guide and shape him, to love him, not just with words like, oh, I love you, but in devoting herself to him and all the tangible expressions of motherhood. Can you think of anything more weak and dependent than the image of a baby? Beloved, this is God's chosen means to constrain all of creation towards the new heavens and the new earth. His method is not one of glory and exaltation and coming you know, as a king and coming in strength and, and showing that strength, showing his might, re- revealing how strong he is by putting everyone down around him. His method is by becoming so weak and dependent that he is a baby. And so not only do we see that the Lord desires to to bring all of creation to the new heavens 
and the new earth, what we see is that it is God's heart and desire to do this by revealing his power and his splendor through the weakness and insignificance of his means. What did we just read moments ago from 1 Corinthians? The gospel is what? It is folly. It makes no sense. Because if you want to win, you got to come hard. If you want to win, you got to come strong. If you want to influence people, well, then you got to win elections. If you want to get you know, God's truth to go out, well, then you've got to be given the freedom to do whatever you think you should be allowed to do in ministry, and it shouldn't cost you anything. If you want to be successful as the church, well, then you need lots of money. And if, if you're going to be successful in missions, then you've got to be able to send you know, tons and tons of missionaries out. If you want to be successful, you've got to have a great building. And you, you don't need to be worried about having to fix it every other week or worried about it falling apart here and there. You've got to make sure it looks pretty in just the right way. You see, we, in the way we perceive of things, as Bonhoeffer said, we have it so wrong. What God tells us today, beloved, is that we must become the baby. Embrace the smallness. Embrace the perceived weakness. Because it is in the smallness, it is in the dependence, it is in the weakness that God loves to reveal his power and the splendor of his glory. Advent is a call to us, beloved, as we reflect upon this incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is a call for us to embrace his smallness and our smallness in him so that we can be conduits of his greatness here in this world, not by the world's measure of greatness, not by the way the world tells us you are to be strong or the way you are to have influence, but by embracing complete and utter dependence on God, getting small, embracing our frailty, because God's purposes or that through the instrumentality of a small, seemingly insignificant people for him to accomplish his eternal purposes. Is that what you want to be a part of? Do you come here Lord's Day after Lord's Day simply because you want to be a part of you know, a, a nice community? Because you want to have a place that you can you know, simply meet people because you want to, you know, or because you want to have a place to hide out because, you know, things have gotten so rotten and awful out there? Or do you have this heart's desire to be a part of what God is doing in your home, in your workplace, in your school, in Charleston, 
Do you want to be a part of the eternal purposes of God? Then become small. Embrace weakness. Look to the baby in the manger and see that that is God, the one who is high and lifted up, who has come to dwell with the lowly in order that he might exalt the lowly to share in his glory forevermore. As you think about your lives in this Advent season, May the Lord give you the vision to see them rightly so that you may be freed up from all the entanglements of this world to give yourself to the matters of the world to come. God is constraining everything that exists right now to the new heavens and to the new earth through the instrumentality of a weak people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that as the one who is high and lifted up, you have cared and you have loved and you have come near to us, that you have not left us in our sin, You have not left us in our brokenness. You have not washed your hands of us when you had every reason to. But you have bound yourself to us in covenant. And you have bound yourself to us in your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us to bind ourselves to you to respond to your love with devotion, to respond to your mission with saying, here I am, send me, to respond to your exaltation by lifting holy hands and cultivating hearts and minds and imaginations for your eternal blessedness. Help us, Lord, to change our taste buds, to change the palate of our mouths so that we are no longer satisfied with the paltry realities of things that can rust and fall apart and that are passing away. But help us, Lord, to cultivate that intersection of the monumental with the minute, that we may properly, Lord, respond and participate, and not grow discouraged, but instead, no matter how bad things get, that we might be the one that can offer to other people the courage and the hope of Jesus Christ, even if that means we languish in a prison with our existence in the hands of a madman because we know that really our existence is in your hands. Lord, help us to embrace the words of Jesus Christ that the worst that can be done is that we can be killed and ushered into glory. 
And so speak to us and reveal yourself in a fresh way this Advent season that we would embrace the smallness, find our comfort in that presence, and then be unleashed with your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.